Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the Checkdown Charlie's podcast. I'm Eric, and I'm here with Theo. How's it going? Not too bad. You know, just drinking my coffee Sunday morning. Nice. I want to say um, happy belated birthday to uh, Michael Strahan. Yes, indeed. As of yesterday, he turns 49 years young. What a legend. Exactly. And we are actually coming up on his, his moment to shine in terms of our History of the Giants podcast. But today's episode will focus more on the aftermath of 1990. In particular, what happened to one Bill Parcells after the 1990 Super Bowl win for the Giants? So that's where we left you guys last time. Yeah, I just want to say it's uh, probably one of the most critical moments in modern Giants history. What happens to the franchise in the ensuing years shaping it up to uh, its eventual Super Bowl victories with uh, Tom Coughlin. Yeah, exactly. Bill Parcells, just to kind of give a bit of a background, obviously, you know, if you've listened to some of the other episodes, you understand what kind of an impact he's had on the franchise throughout the 80s. And, you know, he you know started off as a defensive coordinator, eventually became head coach, and is a two-time Super Bowl winner. I think that he and Tom Coughlin actually have the same number of playoff victories for the Giants, just in terms of impact as a coach. With all that being said, after the 1990 Super Bowl, Parcells decided to retire. He was 49 at the time, and he never really gave a good reason for retiring. I have a quote here from the Baltimore Sun that says that he couldn't talk himself into staying even though he didn't really come up with an answer for why he departed at age 49. He ruled out burnout, money, health, and reported problems with general manager George Young as factors in the decision. However, after leaving the Giants in 1990, he would spend a couple of years with NBC Sports as a commentator and a co-host of a radio show. He had actually agreed to become the coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 1992. However, he backed out of that at the last second because he didn't feel like the situation was right for him. I don't know if you remember me mentioning, Theo, how he had that deal with the Atlanta Falcons as well. The, yeah, um, I remember that. I was really surprised because he was really close to actually switching teams at that point in time in the 80s. Mm-hmm. But you could get the sense that for him, I mean, obviously he wanted a career in the media and he did have that to some extent where he became a radio host. More importantly, I think for him was to have more control and more autonomy over an organization. So for him, I mean, he joined Tampa or he agreed in principle to join Tampa in 1992, backed out at the last second as he did not feel the situation was right for him. And then he eventually would land with the New England Patriots in 1993. I don't know if you know anything about the Patriots. I mean, obviously what we know about them now is mostly the doing of Bill Belichick and, you know, early 2000s and Tom Brady. And anybody who is a fan of of football, of the NFL, has probably heard those names before. But before then, I mean, they had Parcells as a coach and he inherited a pretty young team in the New England Patriots who hadn't really done much in terms of winning championships or anything before he showed up. One of the most notable names and careers that he kind of made as the coach of the Patriots was Drew Bledsoe, who was a quarterback. But at the time, obviously, he was a rookie for the Patriots, kind of a raw talent that he helped to mold. And kind of the height of his Patriots career 
would be going to the Super Bowl and facing Brett Favre and the Green Bay Packers. Eventually, he would lose that Super Bowl to Brett Favre, and I believe that was in 1996. After the Patriots, or his stint with the Patriots, he would eventually leave, citing disagreements with Robert Kraft over personnel decisions, Robert Kraft Mm -hmm. being the owner of the Patriots. And Parcells famously stated that they want you to cook the dinner at least they ought to let you shop for some groceries, okay? Clearly, we were very young at the time and weren't aware of the situation in New England. But mm-hmm. that quote is has lasted its the test of time because it's always used whenever they're talking about like a disruption in the front office, with the head coach, the general manager, you know, and the owner. Mm-hmm. Because you you often see that problem in the NFL where those sort of lines are blurry in terms of personnel decisions and like coaching the team on the field that just you know speaks to how perfect like he basically perfectly summarized that ongoing problem if you look at coaches that also want to have a say or be a gm i think the most famous example is bill belichick who i mean obviously we'll get into at some point but he is basically the de facto gm for the new england patriots as well as the head coach and He's in charge of all, you know, personnel decisions. And I would kind of look at him as a best case scenario for something like that. Whereas you look at someone contemporary like Bill O'Brien, who basically just got fired from the Texans for doing the same thing, uh, trying to be the GM and the head coach at the same time. And, you know, there's an argument to be made that like the person who's coaching the team should ultimately decide who's on the team. And there's also an argument to say that it's too much work for you know one person to take on with too much responsibility for one person to take on it's definitely safe to say though that Kraft had definitely learned about how to treat the head coach throughout his time with bill parcells mm-hmm. i feel like well with belichick being on his staff at that time in new england he did have many conversations with Kraft. right and i just think that probably that experience definitely shaped Kraft's idea of what a good working relationship is yeah definitely and like Obviously, you have experience with, let's say, the Parcells coaching tree, and that's eventually what leads you to hire Bill Belichick in the first place, which is in itself a whole nother saga that we'll end up, uh, we might end up getting into about how he ended up on the Patriots. So from that point on, you could tell that Parcells' ambitions were a little bit more to be in the front office. However, he would spend time with the Jets as a head coach, where he did have complete control of football operations starting in 1997. Um, so he orchestrated a quick turnaround of a 1-15 in team, going 9-7 and the year after, and 12-4 and after that. In 1999, the Jets went 8-8 eight and eight after Vinny Testaverde ruptured his Achilles, and Parcells retired as a coach and stayed on as GM. And this is from his Wikipedia. Uh, However, to date, he's the only Jets coach to leave the team with a winning record after coaching at least two seasons. (laughs) And the Jets are still awful. (laughs) 20 years later. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, eventually he did leave the Jets, and he was lured out of retirement by Jerry Jones in 2003. Jerry Jones obviously being the owner and GM, I guess, of the Cowboys. He's the GM as well as the owner, right? I'm, I'm, is it fair to say that? It's fair to say, yeah, the, the Jones organization runs the front office. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Parcells is actually lured out of retirement to become the head coach in 2003 of the Dallas Cowboys. Famously, Parcells implemented a practice whereby Cowboys players had to quote-unquote earn the star on their helmets. So basically, in order to have a star on your helmet, and if you've seen the Dallas Cowboys logo, obviously you know that they have a star on the side of their helmets. Instead of that being a given, players would have to basically make the team in order for them to have the star sticker on the side of their helmets. Jones actually agreed to have the equipment managers take the stars off the players' helmets until they made the team. To this day, this practice is still implemented with Cowboys rookies, apparently. So they don't get the star until they actually make the team, which is kind of cool. I mean, I understand it as a motivational tactic, you know? Yeah, it also, it probably helps a lot with rookies that are drafted higher because there's sort of a feeling with a lot of them that, oh, once I've been drafted at this position, they value me as such. So I'm an automatic shoe-in to make the team. Yeah. And it sort of causes problems, right? Because then you value, let's say, the rookie that's coming in that hasn't necessarily earned something over, let's say, the second or third rounder that was drafted a couple of years ago that's playing extremely well. Exactly. You know? Exactly. It's just a reminder for incoming uh, players not to take anything for granted, right? Which is good. I mean, he, you know, he talks about that, and he's kind of a master of the motivational tactics. But you know, I remember reading. I read his book, uh, Finding a Way to Win, which he wrote as the head coach of the New England Patriots at the time. So he has many places in the book where he talks about, you know, Patriots are a young team and we're look, we look to open up the offense with Drew Bledsoe and yada, yada, yada. But then he also talked about using different motivational tactics on, let's say, an experienced team like the 86 Giants, who he knew, for example, that he could take that can of trash and dump it all over the defense and say, you guys belong in here with the rest of that. Whereas maybe with rookies or a younger team, he would have them earn the star and like he would get them going in that way. So it's just interesting to see all these different tactics and techniques that he used as a coach. <clears throat> Basically, his career with the Cowboys as a coach, he went from Quincy Carter to Vinny Testaverde to Drew Bledsoe, he brought in from the Patriots. Eventually, it would lead them to Tony Romo. So he's credited with developing Tony Romo into the quarterback that he was. And again, that's right around when I started watching football. It was right when kind of Romo came in and into the league, and then Romo and Manning would have these epic duels. I remember watching like Giants and Cowboys games. It would always come down to the wire, and it would always be like each team would score 30 points at least, you know, like the high-flying offenses. But, I mean, good for him, man. He developed Tony Romo into into the player that we see, into the com- maybe even the commentator that we see, you know, in some indirect way. Well, at the time, Sean Payton was also his offensive coordinator. Yeah. So that did help. The other thing I'd like to add about that is, do you see this often, like, they talk about Belichick doing this, where he's playing the best player at the time and not necessarily focusing on where this guy is drafted or how he brought him in, right? At the time, Tony Romo was an undrafted free agent mm-hmm. and decided to play him because he was the best player to win games at the quarterback position. He's not necessarily attaching a label where, like, this guy was a starter last year. So we owe it to him to, you know, sort of work it out. He's able to detach himself from all those secondary factors. 
you could think about it as a sunk cost fallacy, right? Again, I mean, we brought it up in the other one. It was kind of like, well, I drafted this guy or we drafted this guy in the first round. He must be better than the guy that's in the fourth round, which is not always true. The best talent evaluators, shall we say, are able to kind of see through that and not let that affect their decision. As we speak, my Miami Dolphins, you know, Brian Flores, recently they had signed Jordan Howard and he hadn't been playing well. You know, they signed him to a $6 million contract. They play undrafted free agent Salvan Ahmed, mm-hmm. who's actually been playing pretty well. And, you know, he's taking the first team reps from here on out. Even Gaskin before then was out playing Howard, in my opinion, and then Gaskin got hurt. It's from the same kind of, it's that Belichick coaching tree, which is, I guess, if you look up a level, it's Parcells, right? It's the, you know, you play the best player, no matter how much you use to acquire that player, which is fair enough. I mean, that's the way it should be, in my opinion. Yeah, it's just, the thing is also with people who are just head coaches and not necessarily have a big voice in the head office. General managers, their resume is sort of built off of who they drafted and who they brought in for a significant part, right? Yeah. And so they attach themselves to their draft picks, but that's not necessarily the coach's responsibility, right? So there's always that that issue where the person in the head office always wants to see their draft picks do well versus other guys that, that get brought in because you know, they're not necessarily attached to them. You know, the best partnerships, well, the best way of doing it just generally is when the coach and the GM are on the same page and, you know, you kind of work together in in that way, as opposed to it being an individualistic thing of like, well, the GM's just trying to make it look like he drafted the best team and the coach is just uses the players as an excuse. Perfect example would be like Hugh Jackson a couple of years ago where he was sort of hesitant to play Nick Chubb. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't want to play Nick Chubb. And then they end up, I forgot who was ahead of him, but they end up trading away the first string running back. Carlos Hyde. It's Carlos Hyde, yes. Yeah. It's traded away to, was it Houston? No. Yeah. Hyde's kind of bounced around a few teams, but I believe he got traded to Houston, yeah. Yeah, and that was definitely a GM move so they could play Chubb, you know, yeah. to see if he could win some games. Oh, yeah. For sure. Moving on, like back to Parcells, basically, he went on to leave the Cowboys and was reported anonymously to have inquired about the Giants GM position in 2007, apparently. So that would have been an interesting move to bring him back. But he himself maintains that those rumors were unfounded. He became an analyst for ESPN. It was also rumors that they offered him a spot on Monday Night Football as a commentator, which he actually turned down. However, ESPN owned Parcells' rights as a broadcaster as he was working for the Cowboys. Later on in 2007, he agreed to become executive vice president of football operations for the Miami Dolphins. I don't know if you want to comment on that kind of how that stint went for the Dolphins, Theo, as our our resident Dolphins fan. That was initially when like I decided to become a full on Dolphins fan was when Parcells went there because I was also I was, you know, my cousin had convinced me that Parcells was coming in and he was building that foundation that he had done with other teams mm-hmm. like the Cowboys who ended up, you know, playing pretty successfully over the next like five years. It went okay. I just think that to a certain extent there would have been, if, if he had made a couple of other moves, it would have really changed the direction of the franchise. Later on, he sort of publicly admits that he messed up the 2008 draft 
where he they take Jake Long instead of Matt Ryan. Right. And he fully admits that he should have taken Matt Ryan and that would have changed the franchise. So that would have been interesting to see Matt Ryan in Dolphins colors. Mm-hmm. Years. You know, say what you will about him. You know, he's not sometimes his performances are slightly underwhelming, but I would have taken him in a heartbeat because the Falcons have had some sustained success for over the last 12 years. I mean, they they probably should have won the Super Bowl, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, again, just going back to him being executive VP of football operations as well, he was offered the same position with the Atlanta Falcons. So there must be some connection there between him and the Atlanta Falcons. But eventually he did turn down that position and opted to stick with the Miami Dolphins. His first move was to replace Cam Cameron with Tony Sperano and uh, Jeff Ireland to replace Randy Mueller as GM. And this was, I believe, after the 1-15 season. And then, was that the Wildcat season? Yeah, that was the Wildcat season. Right. And that was the thing, like, he, in place of drafting Matt Ryan, they had signed Chad Pennington. Like, he did finish out his career pretty properly. Like, he, he put up good statistics for the Dolphins, and he was probably the best quarterback since Marino to play in Miami. But ultimately, nothing really came of the Miami Dolphins after that 2008 season. I always remember the Wildcat years, or the Wildcat year, where they took the league by storm, where they had, was it Ricky Williams and uh, Ronnie Brown? Yeah. And, uh, and that thing there it was only to like supplement their, their offense because mm-hmm. they just were not performing as well. And it just kind of hit when they played the Patriots because they caught them off guard. Right. So then they just incorporated that. But then you could argue that that really hindered building their team over the next few years because they didn't really focus on you know, building through the quarterback position in the passing game. I mean, it's easy for us to say that now. Obviously, we don't, we know that, you know, the Dolphins, although the Dolphins look great with Tua now, they're playing really well. But it's interesting to me that he brought in Chad Pennington from the Jets. He had actually drafted Chad Pennington when he was with the Jets, so it makes sense that he would then bring him in to be a QB. And you said it yourself, he was the best since Marino, so... Obviously, Parcells, yeah. you know, likes his guys. You know, he brought in Bledsoe to be on the Bledsoe and Testaverde to be on the Cowboys, and then brings in Pennington to be on the Dolphins to moderate success, actually. But I don't think he'd ever won a Super Bowl, obviously, with any other organization other than the Giants, with the exception of Tony Romo. Mm-hmm. I'd say the quarterbacks are very similar, where they just they have a high floor and they can execute the scheme pretty well. Yeah. But they're nothing, you know, magnificent. You know, they're not, it's not like, well, Phil Sims, you know, is regarded as a great quarterback of the 80s. But comparatively, you know, he's no Dan Marino. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I think Drew Bledsoe had his, had his moment there, maybe early in his career. You're right. I mean, there's nobody that kind of jumps off the page or jumps off the, the stat sheet in terms of like people carrying him you just like coaching solid teams and like you know you can't say that he did a bad job with any of these any of these positions to be honest with you the one thing i I noticed about parcells is that he sort of was always trying to put himself in the best position like there's certain coaches who you know have a good stint and then they go to their second team where they go to a, a next position and they don't necessarily do that well and they sort of fizzle out over time and we forget them parcells highlights definitely on the giants but he sort of had this extended reputation Mm -hmm. 
And he was able to, you know, cultivate that into many opportunities. Whereas like some coaches like, you know, Jeff Fisher, regardless, I know Jeff Fisher hasn't won any Super Bowls, but, you know, he was put in a position in St. Louis and then just ultimately came out on the wrong side of things. A yard short, right? As much as he's revered around the league and many of his students are doing really well, like Mike Shanahan picked a bad spot in Washington, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's just sort of fizzled out after that. I know that he's been asked and it's been thought about to bring him in in like front office positions, but nothing ever came of that. You're talking about Parcells, right? More front office? Or are you talking about Mike Shanahan? I'm just saying, well, Mike Shanahan, nothing. He never went to another team in any other capacity right. besides a coach. Right. I'm just saying that he was not, after his stint with the Broncos, you know, he didn't necessarily put up a good record with the Washington Redskins. And then nothing ever came of that. He never basically found any other opportunities. Yeah. Parcells, you're right. He was able to parlay his coaching career into front office positions and he's not like i don't know there's a couple of times that strike me as he strikes me as somebody who's always going to do what's best for him right like he agreed in principle to join the bucks but then backed out because he didn't feel like it was right for him or wanted to go to the falcons in the 80s and eventually that was actually blocked by the league but he was never afraid to take any opportunities that he saw and yeah he kind of just strikes me as the kind of guy who doesn't really take crap from anybody and he's gonna do what's best for him and i respect that can't help but respect a guy like that yeah exactly he's quick to take himself out of bad situations exactly Exactly. And you could argue going back and forth with, let's say, the Buccaneers situation, not knowing too much about it. But you could argue that Bill Belichick did the same thing uh, when he joined the Jets for like 48 hours and then eventually tendered his own resignation. Like, I'm sure he had a conversation with Parcells to that effect. Mm-hmm. To be like, if it's not good, you know, if you if you don't have a good feeling about it, then get out of there. Anyway, it ended up working out for him. But yeah, that's the episode on on Bill Parcells. I think uh, overall, he and Tom Coughlin, I think, would probably go down as the two most influential coaches in Giants history, in my opinion. If you disagree, please feel free to let us know. We'd love to hear what you guys have to say about this. Let's get the conversation going. But I think we'll wrap it up there. And next episode, we'll go into what happened more in the 90s. But thanks so much for listening to the History of the Giants podcast. And we'll catch you next time. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Checkdown Charlie's podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlies on Twitter and at CheckDownCharlies on Instagram. Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms, and don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.